So, Francis, you're a health reporter here at The Post, and you've been spending a lot of time with these two sisters. Why did you want to do a story about them? I wanted to tell the story of two different health systems. The United States is such a mystery. We spend more money per person than any other country in the world on healthcare, and yet life expectancy here is dropping. And I learned about Portugal, and there life expectancy is going up, even though they spend about a fifth of the amount per person as in the United States. So it's a vast difference, and yet you can't really tell a story about people's lives without meeting real people. And I was lucky enough to come across Lucilia and Lourdes Costa. One lives in Portugal. Hola, Lucilia. Okay. It's Francis. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi. Tell me, how long have you lived here? And the other lives in the United States. I'm the Walter's sister. And they both suffer from the same disease, rheumatoid arthritis. Sometimes I call her just to cry because she understands what I feel. My pain, my emotions. Almost every day or two, every two days I call her. And it was through them that I found a way of telling not just the story of two sisters, but really of two very different ways of looking after people, of caring for people. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Alana Gordon. It's Thursday, November 9th. Today, a tale of two sisters, two countries, and two health systems. We talk with The Post's Frances Steed Sellers about her journey into their lives, one in New Jersey. I've been sick for too many, many years with that doctor. The other in Lisbon. All those different doctors work hard to keep you as well as they can. They care about me. We examine what their different experiences might teach us about how to live longer, healthier lives and why too many of us here in the United States are dying too soon. To start, why did you even want to compare the United States to other places? What is going on in the United States? We've seen a drop-in life expectancy in the richest country in the world that's very, very dramatic. And it isn't only COVID. COVID cost many lives in this country. But when we began to look at data, we realized that this decline had been going on for years before. And many people have related that to opioids and guns and deaths of despair. And that's certainly a big part of the picture. What our data journalists discovered was that chronic illness plays an enormous role and that people in this country are dying of diseases they shouldn't be dying of. And how does that compare to elsewhere? So these diseases are around the world, but in many countries there's more emphasis on primary care and identifying chronic illness, in fact, before it becomes chronic, before it becomes really dangerous. So why did you decide to focus on Portugal? Portugal is one of the countries that people describe as positive outliers. They spend far less than the United States on care altogether, about a fifth of the amount per capita. But they're doing very well. They're living longer than we are. 
And the key thing there appears to be a focus on primary care and community health. They're really looking after people before they ever get to hospital. So tell me about Lucilia and your trip to Portugal. I went to Portugal hoping to meet with two sisters, uh, Lucilia and Lourdes. They'd both lived in the United States, but Lucilia went back to Lisbon where they'd grown up in part because of her health problems. And when I got to Portugal, I got together with my colleague, Catarina Fernandes Martins, and she's Portuguese. And she took me to meet Lucilia, and we went to her house, a tiny little apartment in a suburb called Amadora. Puffing a little as I'm reaching Lucilia Costa's house here, her, her apartment. And it has small winding streets and, you know, those hilly, hilly roads of Lisbon with wonderful views. Many people have their laundry hanging out, brightly colored towels and shirts and other things, and people working on their cars as we approach Lucilia's house. And I'm reminded of the benefits of walking up these hills, which we've been learning about since coming to Lisbon. People are sitting outside here, right on the street, drinking morning coffee. And here we are. hope that works. I didn't realize that inside there were steep stairs and she didn't answer right away and it took a while and I realized she was coming down those stairs and that that was a difficult thing for her to have to do. Mm-hmm. Obrigada, obrigada. Thank you. Hi. And she greeted us with such joy and took us up into her apartment. Here we are in your kitchen and your rheumatoid arthritis stops you from eating some yeah. foods, is that right? I eat... Um, Bananas and lemon, but I can eat apple. Uh, apple. But I see ginger. It's very yeah, healthy yeah. food. Yeah, because the gastroenterologists say you can uh, eat, uh, uh, drink uh, a, a tea mm-hmm. with, ginger with ginger because it's uh, really good for your stomach. And then Lucilia took me into her bedroom. It was tiny, but right beside her bed was a big box of drugs. And we sat down together and looked through them. The methotrexate comes from the specialist, and exactly. that's exactly. free. Drugs for her condition. Her rheumatoid arthritis. It's pain. Painful. Sometimes I cry all day and all night. Two days. So painful. Three days. And I can move. And she told us that sometimes her pain was so bad that she had to crawl from her bedroom to the bathroom. And I'm looking, when you said you can't go to the bathroom, it's maybe 10 steps if you were striding, and it's so painful. Yeah. You go on your knees. Yeah, because I have so many pain in my foot. Yeah. Rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune disease, so the body, in effect, is attacking itself. And it takes different forms with different people. But one of the characteristics is that they have bouts and very unpredictable bouts of pain. What does it mean if their symptoms go unchecked? The problem with RA and many other chronic diseases is that if symptoms go unchecked, the disease can actually damage the body in a permanent way. 
So by giving treatment, you not only alleviate the immediate symptoms, but you prevent the progression of the disease. So this is just a very difficult illness to have. And there can be flare-ups, and it also sounds like there's a lot of complicated support that someone might need to manage all of this and really live a full life. What else did Lucilia tell you about how she and her sister are managing this? They were diagnosed 15 years ago, and both were living in the United States at the time. When these things started, you were living in the United States, weren't you? Yes. You went to the United States to live? Yeah, for 12 years. For 12 years? I I work uh, in a restaurant for 12 hours. Right. After that, I work cleaning houses uh, to a day, for a day. And there was no health insurance? No. Okay, no. And... For Lucilia, the diagnosis was very dramatic. She developed what she thought was pneumonia. She was taken into hospital. And I feel sick and sink at sick. And I, I know, and I say, I need to go to Portugal because here without insurance, I, I don't have a possibility to, to pay. And so I come to Portugal. So you came home to Portugal because of your illness? Yes. And... After Lucilia came back to Portugal, she entered this extraordinary primary care system. And she's very moved by the people who look after her in Portugal. Mm. She talked a lot about her doctors. Dr. Frederic is for the rheumatologist. Mm -hmm. The Dr. Tiago is um, the psychiatric. Mm -hmm. I have um, Dr. Pedro. Is for the gastro. So at the hub of her doctors is her primary care physician. And then there's a gastroenterologist, a psychiatrist, an internist. They are so sweet with me. All those different doctors work hard to keep you as well as they can. And she's close to all of them. But the primary care doctor is really the person who is holding on to her records, and making sure she has appointments with those other doctors, but keeping the records centralized so that somebody is in charge and knows when one doctor says something, it's coordinated with the other doctor. Hmm. So I feel like this is the time when I want to zoom out and be like, how does healthcare work in Portugal? (laughs) What a great question. How does healthcare work in Portugal? The story really begins in 1976, when, with the arrival of a new democratic government and a new constitution, the Portuguese developed a right to health care, a right to access universal care. And many people look back and think that the health system that was born then was really a mark of enlightened thinking that they cling to. It's imperfect now. It's always been imperfect. And I don't know of any country that thinks its healthcare system is perfect. There is also private insurance. And certain people who work, for example, as civil servants, can access what are called subsystems and pay part of their salary to have a supplemental form of healthcare. But the National Health Service, the thing that was born in 1976 and has been through several reforms since then, is really the backbone of everybody's care. So how does that translate then to the ways that Lucilia gets her health care and in terms of the costs? Her costs are minimal. There are some co-pays for medications. Um, 
there have been times when she has gone to private doctors because of delays or other problems, but essentially she doesn't worry much about money in terms of her care. Her actual illness worries her, but she can be treated without it depleting her resources. So it sounds like what you're saying is there's a lot of doctors, too, and healthcare workers and personnel, like, helping to coordinate her care um, because it can be complicated. And you were mentioning that Portugal has this kind of kind of safety net universal system, but a key part of it, from what you were saying, has to do with primary care. So what does that mean in Portugal? How does it work? Primary care is central to the system. It's the entry-level care, it's the gateway, it's where most people meet their doctors. And the system, when it's working perfectly in Portugal, and it isn't right now, assigns a primary care doctor to every single person. And that primary care doctor works with a team of nurses and community workers so that they can do outreach into the community beyond the one-on-one meeting you might have with a primary care doctor. So, for example, I went to a town called Nazare, outside Lisbon, about 75 miles away, to a health center, and met there with a doctor and a nurse. And the striking thing to me was because the doctor and the nurse that I met lived in that community, they knew their patients from the restaurant or the supermarket or just walking along the seafront. Mm. And people came in... They were joking with their doctors. They were joking with the receptionists. They they were all part of the community together, and there was a great level of trust. In the morning, in a, a Christmas day, I'm with some friends. Uh, and so, oh, my God, it's my daughter. The doctor called you on yeah. Christmas Day? Yeah, and I say, maybe I forgot something. So Lucilia, she talked about one Christmas and she was with some friends and there's a traditional chocolate that's eaten at Christmas. It's called Mon Chéri. And the inside of it is a kind of cherry brandy liqueur. It's got some alcohol in it. And everybody in Portugal apparently eats these chocolates at Christmas. So there she was with her friends and her phone went and she picked it up and it was her psychiatrist. And I say, hello, hi. Something happened, and they say, no, uh, Lucilia, do you like Moncherie? And she was so bewildered because she didn't expect her psychiatrist to be working on Christmas Day, and he wasn't. What he was doing was telephoning her to say, I'm concerned because the Moncherie has alcohol, and you take the pills. I hope you're not eating those chocolates because they could be dangerous for your health. And she took the message. She was so astounded. She put the phone down and she turned to her friends and and she said, you know, he was worried about me eating candy on Christmas Day. A great daughter. (laughs) It's a great doctor, you said. Yeah. After the break, we compare Lucilia's experience in Portugal with her sisters here in the United States. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. 
Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com podcast for your free trial monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Francis, let's get back to the United States. I want to learn more about this other sister, Lucilia's older sister, Lurdish. She's been living in the United States. She stayed. And again, they both have the same autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis, which is just really difficult as is. So with her experience here, what happened? How did her path diverge from Lucilia's experience in Portugal? You know, the two sisters were diagnosed around the same time, and Lourdes' onset was very different. It was slower, but still very painful and very unpredictable, and that's one of the problems with this disease. She sought treatment without insurance. As we all know, if you go into the emergency room, they have to stabilize you. You get immediate treatment. And she resorted to that, and one of the problems with that from the system's point of view, is that it can cost as much as 12 times as much to treat somebody in the ER as in a primary care setting. 12 times? 12 times. So there's a huge waste of healthcare dollars in this country with people doing that. And the other problem is that when you leave that emergency room, they can try to link you up with doctors, but if you don't have insurance, how are you going to pay for that? So the temptation is to take the treatment from the ER and then go home and carry on from day to day as you did before. And I think that's largely what Lodesh did. Mm. And the problem not only is systemic, it's also for the patient because rheumatoid arthritis, like many other chronic diseases, respond to the medication not only alleviating the symptoms of the moment, but it also stops the disease from progressing. So you really need to Mm. be on a program of treatment in order not to let the body be damaged by the disease. So you mentioned that both sisters were here in this country and Lucilia went back to Portugal. So I'm curious why she went back and why Lourdes stayed in the U.S., They both came to this country in search of better economic opportunity. And I think it's still true that Lourdes 
feels it's important to send home money. She supported her mother, um, a child she left behind in Portugal, in fact, and sent as much as $250 a month at some points. Lucilia, she went home, I think, looking for stability partly. But you know, when you meet Lourdes, you meet a woman who's in love. It's very obvious. Oh. He's the best friend, the best person in the world. He do everything for me. When I'm sick, he, he sometimes give me food, give me shower, take care of me. She now works for a Portuguese-American restaurant. She's mm. been with them for a long time, and she has a very understanding boss. Mm. Um, earlier on, she was cleaning houses and looking after somebody, an elderly man in his house. But none of these jobs have come with insurance, and so Lourdes has sought private care when she felt she could afford it, or she went to the ER. It's very expensive here. For many, many years, I have no money for pay insurance. You know, it's a lot of money here. And when you think about that cost, and you're describing her pretty disjointed care, going to the emergency rooms, what happened? So she patched together her care, and eventually, about five years ago, a doctor had said to her, And he said, let me tell you something. Go over there. You know, you should go back to Portugal and get care there. They have a good hematologist and cardiologist. The insurance over there, there you can do that. Go. And then I talked to Beto. I said, Beto, I have to go to Portugal. If I stay here, I die. And that's just what she did. I just want to pause for a moment to digest that the medical treatment that a doctor here is prescribing somebody who doesn't have insurance or stable insurance here in the United States, uh, the advice was travel to Portugal to get your care? As extraordinary as that sounds, it's not that that unusual. Mm -hmm. I've talked to other doctors since who have patients who get medication from Canada or elsewhere. Um, So it's, it's happening But she, I think, is a sort of extreme example. She looked for fares to return to Portugal in the off-season so that she wasn't spending too much money on the fare. And, of course, she wanted to see family, too. There was a Mm -hmm. double benefit. When she got to Portugal, she paid a small amount, 65 euros, I think, to access private treatment there. And here's another extraordinary thing. She not only saw one of the top rheumatologists in Lisbon. But while she was there on her trips, she also got screenings. She got a mammogram. She got a colonoscopy. She basically got all the screenings she hadn't been able to afford in the United States and then came back. So she made several trips. This was shortly before the pandemic um, and felt stabilized. And she told me, she said, I don't know what I would have done if I couldn't go back to Portugal because I was really, really sick. When I go there, that is the best thing I, I did. My God, I'm in life because the medications work with me. So when she comes back from Portugal, she brings back many months' worth of medication. And then she'd get to the airport in the U.S. just hoping they'd let her through. I say, please, I have to take this from America. Things are better now that she's 66 and Lourdes is eligible for Medicare. But I found out that even so, it's complicated 
and sometimes her medications are delayed. You know, I don't have I don't have any now. I'm waiting for the insurance to prove more. That's why I have pens. Nobody can imagine the pens. It's terrible. This seems like Portugal has it figured out, and the United States like needs to kind of get its head out of the ground and look outside of its borders for some answers. But at the same time, like to be clear, like Portugal's a very small country and the magnitude and the variation and diversity in the United States presents a whole different ecosystem. And so I wonder how much of what Portugal is doing can really translate or how that can really compare or if part of Portugal's success is because it's this kind of nice, self-contained place. You know, you're absolutely right. It's very hard to draw exact comparisons between a country of 10 million and one of 330 million um, and a federal system at that with 50 Mm. different states. Portugal's got a wonderful outdoor lifestyle, a temperate climate, um, a very communal way of life. It's easy in some ways to live healthily there. People are out and about. They're climbing the hills of Lisbon when I were there. And on top of that, different health insurance systems, different hospitals, and different cultural expectations. One professor told me that she had looked at comparisons of different countries based on how individualistic or collectivist they are. And the United States is way up on the individualistic scale. And Portugal is the opposite. It's a very collectivist country. And we're not going to change that. So there are lessons certainly to be taken from Portugal about healthcare systems, but I don't think they translate easily or straight away. We have to be inventive and innovative in this country. And of course, that's America's strength, right? So many of the innovations in healthcare and other things come from the United States. It's the birthplace of innovation. One of the striking things, one of the striking differences between the two healthcare systems is that the U.S. system is largely private and based on a fee-for-service model. And what we mean by that is that doctors earn their money based on the procedures they perform. Hmm. So think about a neurosurgeon. She might perform a series of high-tech tests and then surgeries, and that's how she earns her money. And it can be in peak years, you know, a million dollars a year. They make a lot of money. Then think about primary care in this country. Primary care doctors actually don't do that much to you, right? They talk to you Mm -hmm. more than doing things. And so they don't earn nearly as much, maybe $230,000 a year in their prime earning years. That that sounds like a lot of money, money, right? (laughs) It sounds like a lot of money, but it isn't compared to a neurosurgeon. And doctors often come into these jobs with medical school debt. And there's also a big expectation here that if you're a doctor, you're going to earn a lot. Hmm. You know, I spoke recently with Dr. Atul Gawande. He's a public health expert and surgeon and best-selling author who's now working for the government, and he's traveling around the world looking for high-impact, low-cost interventions to try to meet this crisis of life expectancy and improve primary care. 
what we mean by primary health care is not just that there's a family physician sitting in a box waiting for you, uh, but that there is also an outreach worker, a community health worker, who touches every home because some large percentage of society in the United States, it's north of 20%, are disconnected from the healthcare yeah. system, have no regular point of contact. In, the, in other countries, it can be 40 or 50%. There are still concerns in Portugal about the amount of money that doctors earn, and that's why some are now going into private practice or even leaving for other countries. It's mm. not a perfect system. It's not managing to keep and retain all the doctors it needs at this point. But... Doctors are highly respected members of their community. They have a certain sense of pride in what they do. They know they're valued. And I think there are reforms now underway which will try to increase salaries. Hmm. That's going to be key. But no doctors in the public system in Portugal make anywhere near the amount that doctors can do here. So the differential between a primary care physician and a specialist is far less. So it sounds like the incentive structure here is not built in favor of primary care, but the benefits to people's health and how long they live or how soon or not soon someone suffers from life-threatening complications from a chronic illness, that primary care really is big part of what Portugal and some of these other countries that you looked at is doing. So can the U.S. consider adding more primary care doctors? Is that something that is being considered here as a way to address how costly this health system is to the system itself and to the country and also to people's health? There are decades of research in this country showing how important primary care is to life expectancy. So this is not earth-shattering new uh, this news. This is not new news. Um, but there's been resistance, and some of that has been cultural, to the notion of having your health care mediated through a primary care physician who then picks your specialist. And so you lose some independence. There also have been financial changes, as we've said, that have increased the, the difference between primary care physicians and the earnings of a highly paid uh, specialist. But right now, there are a couple of movements underway. The Department of Health and Human Services is promising a report and offering a federal sort of underpinning. We don't know the details of that yet for primary care and also two senators have put forward a bipartisan bill, a $26 billion primary care bill that's aimed at stopping some of these staffing shortages. Now, whether either of those things will come to pass, what they'll mean, we don't know. But there's certainly an awareness on all sorts of levels, and as I said, from experts for decades and now I think there's a certain optimism that maybe something will change because it's becoming so very clear that primary care here is not serving our populations. Hmm. So where does that leave these two sisters? Where does that leave Lourdes now? Lourdes is happy here in many ways. She's in a happy relationship. On the walls of her apartment are paintings she's done to keep her mind at rest when she struggles with her illness. But she said to me that she thinks in a few years' time she may move back to Portugal. Hmm. 
And her sister Lucilia said, you know, she feels convinced that whatever she gives up in terms of earnings, she will gain in terms of family and medical care. And I think they both look forward to that, even though the future is still uncertain. The two of them stay in close touch. For now, it's on video calls. How do you feel today? The same, always the same. And you? I feel much better today. You went to the doctor last week? Yes, the primary doctor. I feel a lot of stress and the, and the fears come again. I'm sorry about that. It looks good. I like your shirt. Thank you. I put my best clothes, my best <laughs> outfit. <laughs> Every, everything goes to be well. Takes time. Don't get stressed. Takes time. The doctor called me and say uh, I need to go to the hospital to do the, the, the blood test. He said the blood yeah, test. Yeah. Francis, thank you for sharing this journey. Thank you. And thank you to Lucilia and Luda who shared their stories with us. Beijo. Beijo. Kisses. Stay safe. Ciao. Be safe too. Ciao. Frances Steed-Sellers is a health reporter at The Washington Post. She reported this story with Katarina Fernandez-Martinge. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by me. It was mixed by Eliza Dennis and edited by Maggie Penman. Thanks to Victoria Jaggard, Wendy Gallietta, and Ariel Plotnick. If you're curious about what the average life expectancy is where you live and how it compares to other places around the world— We've included a link in our show notes to the Post's special life expectancy calculator for this project. I'm Alana Gordon. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.